Du lytter til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek, og mit navn er Lise Bakhansen. I denne podcast skal du stifte bekendtskab med den marokkansk-franske forfatter Lela Slimani, som for anden gang var på besøg i dronningesalen til vores internationale forfatterscene. Lela Slimani er en anerkendt debatstemme i Frankrig og de frankofone lande. Hun er en stor stemme for kvinders rettigheder både i Frankrig, Europa og Marokko, med fokus på kønsnormer og seksuel frigørelse. Og hun har også som journalist dækket det arabiske forår i Tunesien. I 2016 der blev hun tildelt Frankrigs fornemmeste litteraturpris, nemlig Prix Concours. Og så har præsident Macron kaldt hende frankofoniens åbne ansigt i den multikulturelle verden. Lille Slimani er lige nu aktuel med bogen De Andres Land, som tager udgangspunkt i Slimanis egen familiehistorie. Det er en stor slægtsfortælling, som både handler om kvindeskæbner, kulturelt sammenstød og kampen for frihed i Marokko. Med på scenen har vi også inviteret Mathias Dressler Bredstof til at interviewe hende. Mathias Dressler Bredstof er blandt andet kulturskribent og anmelder på politikken, han har været bosat i Paris i flere år, hvor han har været lektor og undervist i dansk på Sorbonne Universitetet. I podcasten kan du blandt andet høre Lille Slimani forklare, hvorfor hun mener, at kampen for seksuel frigørelse også er et opgør med diktatoriske styreformer. Rigtig god fornøjelse. Lille, I noticed uh, reading the newest tome of The Country of Others, the book uh, that in French is called uh, Le Pays des Autres, uh, De Andres Land in Danish, that there's a Danish character. There's uh, this hippie girl uh, who travels around southern uh, mid-Morocco smoking hashish and wearing inappropriately little clothes. Um, what's your relationship to Denmark? It's not your first time. It's not my first time, and uh, actually, uh, good evening, sorry. Good evening. <laughs> and actually, the two brothers of uh, my father studied in, studied in Scandinavian country. Uh, one of uh, them studied in Sweden, and the other one in Norway, and they used to come very often to, to Denmark. And my uncle is married to a Sweden woman, so my cousin are half Sweden, half Moroccan. They are very handsome, blonde <laughs> with blue eyes and dark skin. And um, so that's my only relationship with this region. But uh, I watched a very old documentary about the hippies in, in Morocco. And in this documentary, there is a very beautiful Danish girl. And she's um, telling the story of the first time she went to Morocco in the 70s. And she told that uh, actually she was wearing like nothing and um, Moroccan people were a little bit shocked and she came with uh, they used to uh, ask their parents their, their friends to send them letters and they go to the post office in Morocco and they uh, take the letters and then they cut it and they eat it and Moroccan people were like why do you eat letters because actually it was LSD So they were all so Moroccan people were very surprised by those white girls eating the letters they received and then being really weird on the beach after eating the letters. And 
being very weird and yeah, very and, and also meeting making other love on the beach and yeah all sorts of things that you're not supposed to do in the Moroccan desert normally absolutely absolutely uh, and uh, there's I I, I I noticed in the book there's all sorts of people uh, there's also Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, Jimi Hendrix came to Morocco during the summer 1969. He was invited by two Moroccan girls, two Jewish Moroccan girls who were living half in Marrakech, half in, in New York, and he met those two girls and they say, you should come to Morocco. We have great music, we have great musicians, and I'm sure you're going to be fascinated by the African music. So he decided to, to come, but when he arrived in Marrakech, it was really too hot and he suffered a lot. And he said, no, I want to go to the beach. So they took a car and they arrived in Essaouira. And Essaouira is a little town on the beach, on the, on the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. And there's in Essaouira a very famous group of musicians called the Gnawa. Gnawa means the people from Guinea. They are black people. And their music is really fascinating. And they, they play a sort of darbuka and then they turn their head like this and they are in a sort of a trance. And he spent one night with those those Gnawa and people say that he was inspired then in his own music by those Moroccan musicians. And Western music was changed forever. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> I so can't say. So it's it's the it's the it's the Jimi Hendrix rock version of the Beatles going to India, basically. Yeah, yeah, and the Beatles went also to Morocco, and Mick Jagger, he spent time in Tangier. That was a time where a lot of people used to come to Morocco. It was the country of, it was considered very exotic, and at um, the same time, Moroccan people were considered very open-minded. People used to come to smoke ashish, uh, to spend time on the, on the beaches and drink tea and actually do nothing, listen to, to music. And then at the end of the 70s, when it became too much drugs, too much sex, too much rock and roll, the king of Morocco decided that it was too much. And uh, the, the hippie, when they arrived in, it was very funny because I discovered that when they arrived in, in Tangier, you had two policemen and two hairdressers. And they would say, okay, you cut your hair or you don't come, you don't enter <laughs> into Morocco. And so that's how we got rid of the hippies. Right. <laughs> Was it effective? Yeah, actually it was. They really wanted to have long hair. Okay. <laughs> so we'll get back to Le Pays des Autres, the country of others. But I wanted to begin tonight um, by talking about Chanson Douce, mm -hmm. Vogesang, Lullaby in English. Um, it's this book uh, which uh, perhaps, especially here, uh, many uh, readers... Uh, discovered you for the first time. And it follows Miriam and Paul, who are uh, a successful Parisian couple in, in French, we'd say, un couple bobo, uh, bourgeois bohème, as there are many in Paris. And uh, they hire this woman, Louise, to take care of their children. And as I think anyone who's read the book know, even just from the first page, uh, that does not go very well. Um, so I know that it was inspired, if that's the right words, given the context of crime and murder, by a true story. Um, the, the, the murder of the crim siblings in New York. So, I mean, there's, there's so much atrocity out there. What was it with this story that got your imagination going? 
Um, you know, I'm always uh, reluctant to say that it's one story that gave you the idea of a book, because a, a book is something very complex that comes from a lot of different source of inspiration. Um, you know, the, the Israeli writer Amos Oz, he used to say, if you look at an apple, what is an apple? It's water, it's um, sugar, it's earth, it's something that comes from a tree. So it's a lot of things. And a book, it's exactly the same. It's ma made of a lot of things. So the beginning of the book Chanson Douze is the fact that myself, I was raised by a nanny. And I was raised in a house in Morocco where, and in a social class where people are used to have domestics. And it's, it's something when I was um, very young, when I was a child, that um, at the same time that shocked me and that made me ask myself a lot of questions. I didn't understand why some people would work for us, why they would sleep in our house, why at the same time um, people made as if they were family, but I knew that they were not family, why they were poor and why we, we, were, we were not poor, why the woman who was taking care of me, she couldn't read or write and I was going to school. So I think that this, in those interrogation about the status of domestics and the social inequality that existed inside the house, because we speak a lot about all the social um, injustice and the social inequalities, but the fact that you live in your house and you share your intimacy with someone who has so much less than yourself was something really fascinating for me. And then myself, I hired a nanny when I had my first child. So I think that this figure of the nanny interested me a lot. I wrote a first version of this book. I wrote like 150 pages and it was really, really boring. I was bored myself writing it. And it's not a good sign when you're bored writing your book. So I asked myself, what should I do to make this story compelling, interesting? Because the life of a nanny, like the life of a, a mother who lives in the house and takes care of the children, is very repetitive. You do the same thing every day. You go to the park, you cook, you change diapers, you put a baby to sleep, and you redo it and redo it again. So I decided to kill the children. And, uh, <laughs> well I, done. Yeah. And uh, actually, I found this article about this family and uh, the murder of the, the, the two children, the fact also that the mother entered the house because she was looking for, mm. her, for the nanny who didn't answer the phone, and she entered the house and she found the, the children. And then there was also this very famous case of uh, Louise Woodward, who was also an American. No, she was a British woman who came to uh, America to take care of, of children, and she killed one child. So then, yeah, I got interested in all those cases of, of nanny who, yeah, who harmed uh, the children they were taking the, care of. Something absolutely terrifying in the uh, notion of the caregiver suddenly turning murderous. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that's the worst nightmare of uh, every, every parent. And at the same time, for uh, a writer, that's absolutely fascinating, this idea that the one who is supposed to give love, the one who is supposed to protect, uh, is the one who is going to kill mm. and who is going to arm. But at the same time, even if you don't want to tell to tell it to yourself, when you close the door and you leave your child with someone you don't know, 
there is a little part, there is a little place in your brain or somewhere where you know that something mm. could happen. Mm. Even if she's not going to harm him, maybe um, she's not going to do her job well, maybe she's going to be on the phone while he's doing something really dangerous. So there is always the the fact that you're conscious that something could, mm. could happen. And at the same time, you have no choice, especially for a woman who wants to, to work. Mm. Yes, there's always, you're always hypothesizing about the worst that can happen. Um, so, in this book, uh, there's the, the couple, uh, and both Miriam and Paul seem, in many ways, lost, uh, I thought, when read it, reading it. Uh, and they, it's as if they, <coughs> they, they, they thought to themselves, we're expected to have children, but now that we have them, we don't really know what to do with them. Yeah, I think that's always like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they outsource. Yeah, they outsource. I think that they are children themselves. Yeah. They are. Um, they look like adults, but uh, they are a little bit immature. They want to. They want everything. Yeah. This is. They belong to this generation, my generation, where our parents told us you can have everything. You can have a career and you can have children, you can marry or not marry, you can marry a boy, you can marry a girl, you can travel, you can do whatever you want. Especially to us girls, we are the first generation who had this possibility. But when you have everything, you're like, okay, I have everything, but now I don't know how to do it. It's very difficult. And I'm not sure that you can have everything at the same time. Mm. Now that I'm 40, that I have two children, that I have a career, I think that you probably can have everything, but not at the same time. Mm. Uh, sometimes you have to sacrifice one thing for another. So the couple, they, they don't want to sacrifice anything. They want everything. Mm. They want children, at the same time they want freedom. They want to have a career, and they want to have a social life and to have friends. They want to be a couple, and they want also to be individuals. So it's very difficult to have all this. Mm. I, I was struck by, by one of the phrases in the book, uh, there's Paul at one point saying, thinking to himself that, quote, the universe got smaller when I had the children, and it's very, you know, normally you think of it's an enlargement of the universe, suddenly it, it seems smaller. There's Miriam, of whom we hear that, quote, she prefers to watch her children through the lens of her iPhone, where they become the world's most beautiful landscape. And I thought there was something so... Of course, as a parent also, and, and seeing others, I, I, I know it, I see it. But just this, this, this idea that she's, she's kind of so out of it, that at once they're beautiful, but she's introducing a kind of non-beauty in that world. She's, she, she wants play actors. Yeah, but um, that's all the ambiguity about being a parent and all the ambiguity that come with motherhood. Uh, people think, and I remember when I was pregnant of my first child, what people told me. Mm. Oh my God, it's so great and so beautiful. You will never feel alone again and you will see this love. It's going to fulfill you. And oh, the day you're going to give birth, the best day of your life, the worst day in my life. <laughs> 
I don't understand. People say, oh, we'll never forget. I want to forget <laughs> this experience. Thank you. And um, yeah, and you think that all the moments you are going to spend with your children are going to be beautiful and easy and that you're going to forgive them anything. You're never going to be annoyed by the fact that they vomit on you and that they yell and they scream and they don't want. And uh, so, and the truth is that it's not like that. Sometimes you're with them in the apartment and they are bored and they, uh, they don't want and they yell and you just want to, to go out and you just want to be alone. You just want to scream to tell them, shut up. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, I think that we have the right to say that. It doesn't mean that of course that you don't love your children you love them very much but I think also that in our societies where people want to control everything uh, it's very difficult to be with children children mm. you can't control them you can't decide for them that they are going to be you know especially those couples of Bobo in Paris they, they have perfect children who eat vegetable whose name are very weird Theodore, uh, Theophile or I don't know <laughs> Uh, is it, uh, because it's very classy, blah, blah, and they play violin and they, they are very nice, but real children are not like this all the time. No. And if you want your children to be like this, it's better to look at them on the iPhone, I think. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um. The, the couple almost made me think of uh, the couple in uh, Georges Perec's uh, Les Choses things. You know, this, they're, they're kind of, they're very detached from the world, but uh, they, they want to interact, but they, they can't really. It's almost as if parenthood was sometimes kind of described as a, as a, as a kind of mourning. No, yeah, and there's something about this in the book, because, you know, when you give birth to a child, when you become a parent, at the same time, it's the beginning of a new thing. There's mm -hmm. this idea of, of birth, and it's beautiful. But there is also a mourning. Yet there is also something that dies in you. Mm. The older you will never exist again. When you become a mother, and it was the fact for me, for instance, I think that the first feeling that I had was fear. Mm. The first thing that I had was fear. The first time I looked at my child, I was worried. What is going to happen to him? And if I'm not here anymore, who is going to take care of him? Is he cold? Is he hungry? Is he okay? And I know that I will be worried for my children until the day I die. That's something that I will never go back to the old girl, the old Leila that existed mm. before, to the girl who could have a whole day without thinking of something that could happen to, to her children. So yes, there is a morning, there is something that dies in you. And I think that's what we call in French, l'insouciance. L'insouciance. So, so let's leave these insouciants bobos uh, for a minute <laughs> and turn to Louise who is the nanny who, who murders the, the two children that she has as her charge in the beginning of the book. And Louise does everything right. She cleans much more than is asked of her. She does everything right with the children, and she does everything right until everything goes wrong. And uh, at one point, she has a breakdown, and she, she huddles up in her little apartment, and she looks at a note that her doctor has given her, and it says, a delirious melancholy. And I thought that was, when I read it, I thought at once it was a very beautiful, delirious melancholy, and very sad. Could you explain to me what is it? Yeah, it's something very common in my family, so yeah. that's why I'm <laughs> very aware of uh, delirium uh, <laughs> melancholy. Um, 
It's the fact that you are so alone, so uh, unable to express what you are feeling, the despair that you are feeling, that you're completely locked into yourself and you feel that there is no solution, mm. that um, the world is totally, the, the world is against you, everything is black, and your sadness becomes a sort of delirium and you lose totally your rationality. It's um, funny or funny, I don't know if it's funny, but uh, two weeks ago, you know, I work a lot with uh, prisoners um, and I work for an association in France for uh, prison and I was with a woman two weeks ago, I, I, I visit her in, in prison very often and this woman, she's uh, 60 years old, she used to be an archaeologist, she, she's very cultivated, she's very intelligent, she knows a lot of things and I love to, to discuss with her. And there is something when you go visit prisoner, there is a rule, the most important rule, you never ask the question, why are you here? So I know her for a long time. And for the first time, she told me why she was here. Because she killed her neighbor to steal her apartment. And this woman, I could say, is a completely normal woman, mm -hmm. like you and me. And I asked her, how does it happen? And she told me exactly that. I was so sad, I was so despaired that I lost completely the sense of reason. I lost the difference between good and, and, and bad, between evil and, and good. And, and she said to me that she was completely, completely locked in herself. And I think that's exactly what happens to Louise. She's unable to ask for help. Mm. I think that's the worst thing, the moment when you can't say to someone, I'm droning, I'm going to do something really wrong, please help me. You don't even believe that someone could help you. So let's enter a bit more into the book. There's a scene in the middle, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you perhaps to read it, uh, page 112, and you describe this archetypical Parisian place, which is Le Square, the small park populated during the day with nannies and children closed in the night. And during COVID, you could even not even go during the day because it's France and there are rules that make no sense. Um, and uh, this idea of the park uh, really spoke to me because I remember living in Paris and sometimes going out in the middle of the day, seeing these parks, these squares. And this, there was this sense of a double life being led there, that there was the life of les bureaux, the, the offices and, and, and uh, the commercial life and all of this. And then there was the life of principally women and children, women often of African and North African descent, uh, doing this reproductive labor. In yeah, and park. it's interesting because it's a life, a, a double life, as you said, that produces nothing uh, as the society that we are living in, the capitalist society defines it. They don't produce anything. It's just a life of care. You take care, a life of eating, of playing, of tenderness. So it's also, it, if you spend time there, it's mm. very weird because they, you don't speak about a, a production and all this. It's just having fun, playing, eating, going back home, having a nap. And it's, yeah, like a double life, absolutely. Mm. Well, let, let's hear the portrait of this okay. place. Les squares, les après-midi d'hiver. Le crachin, balayer les feuilles mortes. Le gravier glacé colle aux genoux des petits. Sur les bancs, dans les allées discrètes, on croise ceux dont le monde ne veut plus. Il fuit les appartements exigus, les salons tristes, les fauteuils creusés par l'inactivité et l'ennui. Il préfère grelotter en plein air, le dos rond, les bras croisés. 
À 16 heures, les journées oisives paraissent interminables. C'est au milieu de l'après-midi que l'on perçoit le temps gâché, que l'on s'inquiète de la soirée à venir. À 7 heures, on a honte de ne servir à rien. Les squares, les après-midi d'hiver, sont hantés par les vagabonds, les clochards, les chômeurs et les vieux, les malades, les errants, les précaires, ceux qui ne travaillent pas, ceux qui ne produisent rien, ceux qui ne font pas d'argent. Au printemps, bien sûr, les amoureux reviennent, les couples clandestins trouvent un domicile sous les tilleuls, dans les alcôves fleuries, les touristes photographient les, les statues. L'hiver, c'est autre chose. Autour du toboggan glacé, il y a les nounous et leur armée d'enfants. Enveloppés dans des doudounes qui les empêchent, les bambins courent comme de grosses poupées japonaises, le nez dégoulinant de morve, les doigts violets. Ils soufflent de la fumée blanche et s'en émerveillent. Dans les poussettes, les bébés harnachés contemplent leurs aînés. Peut-être certains en éprouvent-ils de la mélancolie, de l'impatience. Ils ont hâte sans doute de pouvoir se réchauffer en grimpant sur le portique en bois. Ils piaffent à l'idée d'échapper à la surveillance des femmes qui les rattrapent d'une main sûre ou brutale, douce ou excédée. Des femmes en boubou dans l'hiver glacial. Il y a les mères aussi, les mères au regard vague. Celles qu'un accouchement récent retient à la lisière du monde et qui, sur ce banc, sent le poids de son ventre encore flasque. Elle porte son corps de douleur et de sécrétion, son corps qui sent le lait aigre et le sang. Cette chair qu'elle traîne et à qui elle n'offre ni soin ni repos. Il y a les mères souriantes, radieuses, les mères si rares que tous les enfants couvrent des yeux. Ceux qui n'ont pas dit au revoir ce matin, qui ne les ont pas laissées dans les bras d'une autre. Celles qu'un jour de congé exceptionnel a poussé là et qui profitent avec un enthousiasme étrange de cette banale journée d'hiver au parc. Les hommes, il y en a, mais plus près des bancs du square, plus près du bac à sable, plus près des bambins, les femmes forment un mur compact, une défense infrangissable. On se méfie des hommes qui errent, de ceux qui s'intéressent à ce monde de bonnes femmes. On chasse ceux qui sourient aux enfants, qui regardent leurs joues replètes et leurs petites jambes. Les grands-mères le déplorent. Avec tous les pédophiles qu'il y a aujourd'hui, de mon temps, ça n'existait pas. Thank you. And so this description of, uh, of, of the park as... Uh Uh, of, of a society that's kind of split between the park and the streets, of the productive and the reproductive labor. I was thinking, reading, the, the, the book came out in 2016, and I remember reading it then, and then now I, I reread it. And what's come between in France is Les Gilets Jaunes, the, the Yellow Vests movement of 2018. And uh, I was thinking, uh, reading it now, it's, it's, it was struck by just how prescient it seems. Uh, that the, really what this book is, is it's a play of class, a play of the kind of intimacy and interwovenness of classes. Yes, absolutely. This is really a book about class. And I have to say that um, uh, in France, a lot of journalists had a very Marxist le reading lecture of, of the book. But I think uh, that it's relevant. It's a book about uh, people pretending that class don't exist anymore. Uh, Miriam and Paul, the Bobo, they are um, typical of this social class that denies the fact that social class exists. The, the Bobo is exactly that. People who consider themselves as a 
cultural class. They consider that there is no border, that everyone is equal, that uh, um, that there is no, they are not racist, they are not despiseful, they love everyone, they respect everyone, and they have very good intention. My, my point is not to, to tell that they are bad people, but I think that they are completely blind to the reality of, of the society, and so when they hire those women, they don't want to know where they come from, they don't want to know where they live, they don't want to know how difficult life is for them because they don't want to be confronted to the difficulties of life, to real life. And they live in a city, Paris, where there are less and less uh, poor people because they can't live in Paris. This is a, a city where there is less and less mixity. People live together. If you go today in some neighborhoods in, in Paris, in Le Neuvième, Le Sixième, of those kinds of neighborhoods, all the people are the same, they look the same, they wear the same kind of jeans, the same, they eat the same quinoa salad, they, they will drink the same green juice, blah, blah, that, they, that cost eight euro or nine euro, and they are very happy with, with that, and they are, I think, completely blind to, to the fact that they live in a city that rejects uh, totally every poor people, but at the same time, they need them. Mm. They need them to clean. They need them to take care of the of the children. So this, those squares are those sort of little agora where this class can continue to exist. And and I thought that was something so interesting about the book, uh, the how uh, it's the the different classes enter into the intimacy of one another, or rather the laborious class yeah. enters into the intimacy of this bobo couple. And uh, something that you always see in France when there's the strikes, suddenly you see that the garbage is not being picked up, there are not cheap baguettes at six o'clock in the morning because people who live around Paris, they can't enter because the trains are not running. And so what I thought interesting with this book was also uh, the sense in which uh, the the, the poor or the, the working class, they see the intimacy of the life of the rich, but the rich never go out of Paris and see the life of the poor. Yeah, and the laborious class, they know very intimate details, what you eat, yeah. uh, how much you drink, uh, they uh, even we. She says she knows when they make love. She 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 she's the one who's taking care of of the house. She changes the the sheets. So she knows everything, the most intimate details about about them. And Miriam and Paul, they are not curious at all. They they don't want to know. And um, I'm not even sure. Yeah, they are at, at the middle of the book. They begin to be a little bit. Um, uncomfortable about the fact that she knows so much about uh, about them but they consider that it's the price to the price to pay but as you said the the woman who is having la boulangerie she knows exactly how much you're going to consume to to pay and uh, what you eat and they they know everything but it's um, it's not something on the on the both on both sides mm. as you said they are the one entering the intimacy mm. Mm. and that's probably why also the upper class is so uh, she's afraid also of the laborious class because maybe that's because of that because they know that they they know a lot of things about your intimacy so they have sort of something against you they can control you better I think 
Let's turn to uh, the book which is called Sex et Mensonge, uh, which has not come out in Danish yet. Um, it came out a year after Lullaby, and it's, the subtitle is uh, Real Stories of the Sex Life of Women in Morocco. And there's this theme, theme that uh, runs throughout your books, which is the question of uh, the fact, rather, of female desire, sexuality. Um, I know you met many of these book and many of these women on a book tour, uh, and uh, they came up to you. What, what were they saying to you? What were, you, what were they telling you that, that made you want to write this book? Actually, this, this book, he, I had the idea of the book a long time ago, uh, when I was a journalist. I was a journalist in a newspaper called Jeune Afrique, and I was specialized in uh, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, and the Maghreb. And I was writing a paper, more society paper and cultural paper. And I was specialized in the condition of young people in those countries, the question of unemployment and uh, illegal immigration. And when I was um, working, going for, for instance, on the border between Tunisia and Algeria, or in the center of Morocco, very poor uh, places where a lot of young people go, try to go to Europe, or they kill themselves, or they are in very, very difficult situation. I was interviewing them, and uh, at the end, they, they were talking to me about all the difficulties. And at the end, I would always say, and we don't ev we can't even have a girlfriend we can't even have our sexuality or free sexuality above on above of, of on all that we have this repression on on sexuality so it's something that began to interest me a lot because um in morocco but also in algeria tunisia and many many muslim country sexual intercourse are forbidden outside marriage so the only sexuality that is permitted is the sexuality that you can have with your husband or your wife. For a woman, the only alternatives are being a virgin or being a wife. Adultery is forbidden. And when I say forbidden, I mean that you can go to prison. Uh, homosexuality is forbidden. Abortion is forbidden. And in a country like Morocco, there are like 600 uh, abortions per day. Illegal abortion, of course, and very dangerous uh, abortion per day. So it's a subject that began to, yeah, to obsess me. It's and, explosive. Uh, yeah, it's explosive. And, and on and both I, sides yeah, of the And I understood also, because we were speak, speaking of social class, that it was, not only a pro it was not a problem of religion. It was not a problem of morality. It was a problem of social class. Because when you are rich and you have a car and you have a house um, in Rabat or Casablanca, when you can travel, you have a visa. Actually, you have exactly the same sexual life as a someone who lives in London or in Paris. But when you're poor and you're a girl, mm. um, you're much more, you have much more chance to be victim of harassment, of a rape. Uh, if you're raped, you can't go to the police to say that you were raped because they are going to tell you you had sexual intercourse be without being married. And you have more chance to have an abortion. So that's also a question of social class. Mm. And I think that if the bourgeois and the elite doesn't really care and doesn't fight for those rights, it's because um, for them, it's a way to humiliate people. And it's a way to control them. Because when you control the bodies, you control everything. Mm. 
you write, you quote somewhere uh, in the book a, um, uh, a, a, a political scientist called Umasagi, who says uh, that the fight for sexual liberation is the first fight against any dictatorship. Yeah, absolutely. How so? Because you know when when um, a, a regime gives you the idea that you don't even own your body, mm. that you don't even have the right to decide who is going to touch it, that your father, your brother, your husband has something to say about the fact that you are or you're not a virgin, that you can go to prison for that. It means that you're not really a citizen. You're, you're nothing, you're, you don't have any rights. You know, it's easy to say I can, I can speak out and I can say whatever I want, but if you don't, can't even control your own body, if you can't control, uh, you don't have the right to tenderness, you don't have the right to intimacy, you, you don't have the right to love. Uh, we are now with the association that I created in Morocco. We, we had um, like a big campaign for the election called Vote for Love. Because what we want also is to tell our governance that to love is not a shame, that we should not be ashamed of loving someone and that we should not hide ourselves if we are in love. That's terrible to tell a, a boy or a girl who is 17 or 18 that you don't have the right to walk on the street taking the, your hand, you don't have the right to sit on a cafe, spend the time together and kiss and have those moments. You know, I remember that when I arrived for the first time in Paris, I was walking near the Seine and I was alone and I saw two French people kissing each other with a real French kiss with the tongue and all that and I was like and I was sure that I were going to be arrested and I was <laughs> waiting the police because I was like wow they are almost making love outside yeah. and no no one cared yeah. and then I got used to, to that but in so many countries it's something that is just impossible. Yeah. You, you, several times you describe, you use the word schizophrenic, speaking about Moroccan society, and it made me think of, of France Fanon, the, the, the um, Martinique uh, psychiatrist mm -hmm. who worked in Algeria and wrote Les Donnes de la Terre, who also uh, made an analysis of colonial society uh, from the point of view of psychology, speaking of how, you know, a, a, a original identity is effaced and uh, there is a kind of estrangement. Uh, how is this schizophrenia, how does it play out? How do you see it in, in Moroccan society? The thing is that, um, so they can arrest you, but uh, obviously um, you can imagine that a lot of people have sexual intercourse without being married, the majority of, of Moroccan people. So um, the government say, okay, you can do it, but don't tell it. Mm. You can do it, but lie. And when you are a child, your parents tell you, okay, it's forbidden by the law. You don't have the right to do it. So if you want to do it, you have to hide. You have to lie. So you live in a society where everyone is trained to be mm. a hypocrite mm. and where everyone is trained to have a sort of double life. You have the, the, the life for outside, the public face, mm. where you pretend to be virtuous and you pretend to be a virgin and you pretend to do everything good. And you have the other life behind the closed door where you do whatever you want. And the thing is that when you consider that just making love is illegal, uh, 
Where do you put the boundary? Mm. Of course, prostitution, uh, uh, incest, pedophilia, uh, all this occur in Morocco. But when you consider that just making love is a crime, how will you really fight against the real crimes mm. that are incest and pedophilia? No one wants to know. Close the door, we don't want to know. That's also the problem. The problem is that we live in a country where no one fights against those mm. terrible and tragic things. And everyone is, in a certain sense, made to be complicit in yeah, their absolutely. lives. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. Um, so I was wondering, the, the, the one thing I noticed uh, in several of your books is the meaning of the West in the, well, it's not the East, so the South. Um, And it's as if the West, uh, also for some of these women, that you're, they're afraid of being um, made to be seen as too Western, because the West in some sense means uh, transgression, uh, permissiveness, a kind of decline. And paradoxically, or not paradoxically, but I th you know, these days we hear some of the same words being used by Putin. To, to talk of the West, so there's a real kind of, the West plays an, a, a, an important role. And in the book, for example, you write about how there's a concert in Rabat, Rabat uh, where, that sparks outrage, which is by J uh, Jennifer Lopez. Uh, everyone watches the concert, everyone is outraged. Um, so I was just wondering, what is this idea of the West? We know the, the idea of the East and the West, but what's the idea of the West in Morocco? Oh, it comes from, um, I think, from colonization. Mm. Uh, Morocco is not the country that is the, the most violent against the West. I would say that uh, in Algeria, it's even more violent. In Morocco, it's very ambiguous. At the same time, the, the name of Morocco is the West. Maghreb in Arabic means the West, so we are the West. Uh, Moroccan people consider themselves very close to Western people. Uh, in Morocco, if you go there, people are very open to Europe and to Spain, to Morocco, to France. They speak foreign languages. Uh, so this is not a cultural problem. The problem comes first, I think, from the colonization. And in terms also of sexuality, it comes from that. Um, colonization was a sexual enterprise. When the, the French people and the British people decided to colonize the world and to colonize Africa, the idea was not only to conquer lands, but it was also to conquer bodies, men and women bodies. Men were supposed to work for you. Uh, there were labor force and women, You could um, make love to them, you could rape them, you could possess them exactly as you wanted. Uh, you know, there were laws there in, in, in Africa that permitted uh, rape for uh, white men towards um, black women or Maghrebi women. It was not criminalized. They could do whatever they want with the native, native people. So I think that there was a sort of a trauma for a lot of Africans and a lot of Maghrebi people because they could see that the white people, he was married to a white woman and they were very bourgeois and they seemed very, you know, to have a morality and they would go to the church on, on Sunday and all this seems, yeah, really, really good. And at the same time, this same man would rape a young girl who was 15. So I think that there is this idea that the people from the West have a deprived sexuality and that they will bring this 
to Morocco that there will also uh, there is also a big fear of homosexuality. I think that when uh, in France they voted for the gay marriage uh, in Morocco, people couldn't understand. It's something that really, really shocked them. Now it's changing a little bit and we're trying to make it change. But it's something where they say, okay, that's the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Now if people, if gay people can, can marry, there is no rule anymore. There is no, nothing is sacred anymore. So it's very difficult to try to explain to them that no, of course, it's not the end of the world, that of course, homosexuals should have, should have rights. But yes, there is a fear of freedom, freedom of women freedom of gay people and I think that this fear comes also a little bit from colonization. The book that came after uh, the newest one that we have in Danish which is called uh, Le Pays des Autres, Die Angras Land and uh, it's said to be a trilogy. The first two have been published in France. You just told me that you've just started writing the third. And um, it's, it's set in France and Morocco, principally Morocco. Um, and it begins just after the Second World War with Matilda uh, and Amin, who are married, uh, and who Matilda is French, Amin is, is Moroccan, but uh, participated on the French side during the war. And they ride on a mule through the countryside, countryside outside Meknes uh, in Morocco. And it's a love story between them, if you can call that love. Yeah. Um, but it's also a war story. And then it's your story, or rather it's your family's. Yeah, it's inspired by my family, yeah, absolutely. The couple of Mathilde and Amin are inspired by my, my grandparents, the parents of my mother. My grandmother was um, a woman from Alsace, and she did meet my grandfather, who was a soldier in, in the colonial army. They met in 1944. They married in Alsace. And my grandmother, who was very influenced by old um, colonial mythology and who thought that she was going to be like Karen Blixen arriving in Africa <laughs> with a big farm and Robert Redford and all that. No, no Robert Redford, no farm, nothing. No luck. She arrived with a very silent and violent husband. So not as glamorous as uh, the farm in Africa. <laughs> she wanted horses and she got a mule. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So the title is ambiguous, Le Pays des Autres, uh, because there's the other and then there's the others and then there's uh, the sense of which everyone's a stranger, everyone's another. Um, so both, so Matilda, obviously she, 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 she comes from France and Alsace is a very particular place in France also with kind of the German background. Uh, she comes to this Morocco of the 1950s, which is still... Uh, of 47, I think she arrives, right? Uh, and it's still a French protectorate. What is the Morocco that she sees with her eyes at this point? So she arrives just after the war. Morocco is a protectorat since like um, 1912. 
Um, French are very present in the region of, of Meknes and especially in the little town of, of, uh, of the little town of Meknes because there are a lot of soldiers there and a lot of farmers also around the, the city, very rich French farmer because when French people arrived in Morocco, Morocco gave them the best lands because they, they thought that they had skills and that they could um, cultivate the, the lands. Uh, when the French arrived in the beginning of the 19th century, uh, Morocco is sort of a, quite a feudal, very traditional country uh, and a very, very poor country where there are still a lot of famines and a lot of epidemies who still have plague, cholera, typhus, uh, people are starving. But it's also um, a very strong state with a, a king and very old dynasty. And French people are very respectful of that because they are very old cities and uh, there is a, a refined and complex culture that um, uh, French people respected in, in, in a certain way. And so she arrives in this little town, very beautiful town, and this town is divided into three different neighborhoods. You have the European center, uh, you have the Arab or Muslim neighborhood, and then the Jewish neighborhood. And the idea was that if you want everything to be okay, people should never mix, should never meet. And uh, you, there is like a frontier that people should not cross. During the day, Arab can come, of course, to the European city to work as domestic, as all this. But then at the end of the day, they have to go back mm. in their neighborhood. And if everyone stays in their place, everything is going to be okay. And um, Mathilde, who is inspired by my grandmother, it's very difficult for her because at the same time, she is white, she is French, mm. she is a tall, blonde girl, and she is married to an Arab. Mm. So when she goes to the European city, the European girl look at her and despise her, saying, yeah, she's married to, to an Arab. When she goes to the Muslim neighborhood, she can feel also that she doesn't belong, so she is always in the country of others. Mm. And it's the same for Amin, who is a soldier in the colonial army. He arrives in France, he sees the snow for the first time, and he understands that maybe he's going to die in a country that he doesn't know, that he's never been in, and that he's the soldier for the country of others. Mm. And that his own country, Morocco, is not his country anymore. It's the country of others. So it's, uh, this title is about the fact that the members of this family always feel that they are a stranger. Whatever they do, mm. they feel like strangers. And this uh, law of estrangement uh, continues with the next generations, it seems, uh, who redo a kind of uh, a journey to France, a return, and it seems that the, the, the colonization, the decolonization creates uh, a situation where uh, identity is never fixed, of course, but is, is always and continues to be a problem. They're always kind of lost or never really home. 
Yeah, um, for the generation of my parents, it was different. Yeah, as you said, they were not colonized anymore. The Morocco was not colonized anymore. But uh, you were quoting Franz Fanon before. They are still colonized in their body and in mm. their in their soul. They are very much influenced by the West. They live in in Morocco. It's in the 70s. They read Le Monde. Uh, the the, te the the teacher at the university is Roland Barthes. They speak in French. They want to look like French people. My mother wanted to look like Françoise Hardy and she has the same hair as me. <laughs> so it was like a problem. And those people are sort of self-hatred, you know. They didn't want to be Moroccan and they would have, they would make some remarks about themselves, about that their culture that are very racist. Sometimes even Moroccan people. And my generation is different. Yes, um, I think that today it's, I don't say that it's easier, but today I think that there is a place for people who have multiple identities and who can feel good in Morocco, in France, in the US, who speak multiple languages. And I think also that it's not always a problem or it's not always sad or it's not always a tragedy to, to be lost. Mm. I feel like a stranger everywhere and I love to be a stranger. Now I live in, in Portugal in a country where I'm a complete stranger. I have no special links with this country and I love that. Um, I think that anyway, being a stranger is a metaphysical feeling. You can be a stranger in your own family. You can be a stranger in your home. You can be a stranger in your couple. So being a stranger is something that goes, I think it, it's much more complex than just a, a question of a passport, of identity. You can feel like a stranger f mm. your whole life. But these people are in a political sense, strange. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean that uh, you can be a stranger in a political sense and at the same time fight because mm. you want to belong and you can belong and at the same mm. time you mm. never feel that, mm. that you do. So I think that identity is much more complex than just the political mm. meaning of identity. Um, the Algerian writer Kamel Daoud once said that uh, the French language was the uh, was the, the war treasure that the French inadvertently left when they when they left Morocco when they left Algeria Tunisia so on uh, and when the decolonization began and it struck me reading your book that it seems these you, you were talking about this as a generational thing. It seems like more and more of these stories are coming out. You're writing about Morocco. There's several writers writing about the same experience, but from an Algerian French vantage point. So what is, this, what is it that's changed with your generation that, that now makes it possible to see this story as a, as a long story? Time, yeah. just time. Literature needs time and needs distance. I'm always, um, I always laugh when I hear people saying, you know, when the 11, September 11 happened or during the, the COVID crisis, everyone was like, wow, we are going to publish so many books about COVID. I can tell you that the first good and big novel about COVID will be written in 20 years or 25 years because literature needs distance and literature needs also souvenir, needs nostalgia, needs um, um, also if you want to write with a certain sense of complexity, with nuance, you need to 
step step down and look with a certain distance to a situation. I think that the generation of my parents who experienced that um, couldn't write good novels about colonization because there were actors of 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 this uh, of this history and uh, also because maybe there was too much anger and um anger is not good when you want to 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 write this kind of of novel for my generation it's very different we have what our grandparents told us or didn't tell us and uh, we have the history books that help us have information and I think that we have nothing to prove. We're not here to try to prove that those were good and uh, we are victims and you were bad guys. That's not the point. It's mm. just trying to write a human mm. story and try to show that everything, yeah, was very confused, that it's not black and white, it's gray, because literature is gray. So, yes, I think it's a question of distance. We mm. always need distance. Mm. Could I ask you to read a... You've got it there, the, uh, a passage. Uh, it's a short passage in French. It's about Matilda, who's the Alsatian mother coming to Meknes, and she runs through the Medina, uh, and she's covered from head to toe, and she has the experience of suddenly not being this tall white woman walking around Morocco, but suddenly blending in. So. Le corps et le visage entièrement couverts, elle sortit de la voiture et se dirigea vers la maison de sa belle-mère. Elle transpirait sous les couches de tissu et elle baissait parfois le foulard qui couvrait sa bouche pour reprendre son souffle. Ce déguisement lui fit une impression étrange. Elle était comme une petite fille qui joue à être une autre et cette imposture la grisait. Elle passait totalement inaperçue, fantôme parmi les fantômes et personne sous ses voiles ne pouvait deviner qu'elle était une étrangère. Elle dépassa un groupe de jeunes garçons qui vendaient des cacahuètes de Boufakran et s'arrêta devant une petite carriole pour tâter du bout des doigts des nefles oranges et charnues. En arabe, elle négocia le prix et le vendeur, un paysan maigre et rieur, lui céda le kilo pour une somme modique. Elle voulut alors baisser le voile, montrer son visage, ses grands yeux verts, dire au vieil homme « Tu m'as prise pour ce que je ne suis pas !» Mais la plaisanterie lui sembla idiote et elle renonça au plaisir de moquer la naïveté des passants. Les yeux baissés, son voile remontait jusqu'au-dessus du nez. Elle se sentait disparaître et elle ne savait pas vraiment quoi en penser. Si cet anonymat la protégeait, la grisait même, il était comme un gouffre dans lequel elle s'enfonçait malgré elle. Et il lui semblait qu'à chaque pas, elle perdait un peu plus son nom, son identité, qu'en masquant son visage, elle masquait une part essentielle d'elle-même. She um, she goes from one position to the next. She doesn't really know, you know, just to you know put some words on it in English. She she doesn't know if what she's feeling is freedom or loss of freedom. Uh, putting on the, uh, the 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 dress and the the, uh, the scarf and the everything and is this 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 feeling that she has? How do you see it? Is that is it? Is it a necessary, is to, to fit in, you have to lose yourself? You have to leave yourself? No, I don't have a, I don't really have the answer. I don't know. I think, as you said, that uh, she has this very ambiguous feeling that we can all have. Sometimes you are in some situation where you feel at the same time that you, that this situation can liberate you 
and that maybe also you're losing your freedom, as you said, when you are very, very in love, when you feel, for instance, when you're experiencing a passion, um, at the same time you lose, you have the feeling that you're losing your freedom, your freedom to say no, that you're obsessed by the person you love, that you could do anything for, for this person, and at the same time, you have the feeling that you have never been as free and that you could do everything. So it's, um, I think it's a way to show that uh, in life, many situations are ambiguous. It's very easy to say, yes, veil, it's like this or it's like that. Mm. No, it's, um, it's complex. It's very complex. It's not uh, as easy as sometimes in France, especially in the debate about, about veil. Things seem always very clear and very simple, and I'm not sure that it's as uh, as simple. So, yeah, Mathilde, she's experiencing that uh, in Morocco. At the same time, sometimes she wants to forget herself. Mm. And um, when she comes back from Alsace, for instance, in the book, she says something that can seem very weird, that you're free when you decide to renounce. Mm. You're free at the moment where you're not free, actually, mm. where you decide something and you do it and you don't give yourself any option, any choice, that freedom is the absence of choice. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I agree with her, but I can understand what mm. she means. So just, you've touched upon it yourself, this, the question of the veil in France is so tainted. Uh, and... Uh, to me, it, it often seemed like uh, there was, uh, from uh, especially politicians, uh, an uh, refusal refusal to 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 accept that a sign can have different significations for different people. But I think that there is also a lot of racism mm. and a lot of ignorance because um, it's not only the refusal to admit that it can have different sense, it's the refusal to um, try to read and understand and gain some knowledge about this. They are not interested. This is a lack of curiosity. And there is also this idea that we French people from Le Pays des Lumières, we know exactly what it means and uh, we can give you some lessons about freedom and all that. I don't say that I defend the, the veil. Uh, I, I think that it is a symbol of... Uh, uh, of domination and that it's a symbol of, of patriarcha. But for me, there is a big difference between the veil and a veiled woman. Mm. It is not the same. I think that you can uh, be an activist for emancipation and even think that women should not wear the veil. But I would never, never attack a veiled woman. I think that a woman has a right to wear whatever she wants to, to, to wear. Who am I to tell her that she can't do it? And if she tells me that she does it freely, who am I mm. to tell her? So that's the problem for me, is that people are uh, criticizing and attacking in a very, sometimes very violent way, a veiled woman. Um, so, but I always say to women, Okay, I defend the right for a woman to wear a veil if this woman defends my right to wear a miniskirt. Mm. So I think it has to go on both mm. sides. And if it's like this, there is no problem. Do you see that as a, as a colonial attitude? The, you touched upon it a bit. The, 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 the desire from some quarters to 
tell others what freedom is. Yeah, exactly, to liberate you. Mm. Because you live in the dark, we are going to liberate you and to tell you how to live. But as you said, veil has so many different signification. Uh, you know, a woman who is a widow who is going to wear this veil. The other day I was in Morocco and I was having a presentation like this and a woman, she raised her hand at the end of the presentation to ask a question. She was wearing a veil. She's a lesbian activist and uh, she's uh, an intellectual. She's a woman who smokes and she comes with us to nightclubs. She's a very free woman and very emancipated woman. She's religious, she believes in God, and she thinks that she has to wear that. Who am I to tell her that she's not free because of that? Mm. And I would never say that either to a Jewish woman who, were, who wears a, a wig or, or to someone who has a cross. I think that anyone has the right to, to believe. And you know what? They say, oh, yes, but this woman is a submission to... But religion is submission. They say they are submission. They are, but it's not about men. But what is it with France, though, that makes it so much more tainted it seems, this discussion than it is in, in, in many Northern European countries. But uh, I think that it's probably, ha it has to, to do with laïcité, with their, their definition that is very specific to France of, of laïcité. It has to do with the colonial past, uh, with also the... Laïcité, kind of secularism of Yeah, you, it's not really secularism, it's very specific. It's the idea that um, religion should be... Um, not absent, but that, uh, for instance, in school or in public spaces, you should not uh, show your religion, that religion is a very private thing, that you have the right, of course, to live it, and that the, the state, uh, the public state, should not get involved at all in any religion mm. and should not finance or mm. uh, promote any, any religion. And I think that, it's, um, that is good, and I defend laïcité, but I have the feeling that some people today are instrumentalizing this uh, actually to attack a community and uh, they are trying to make people believe that they are defenders of laïcité, although they are racist people. Mm. So um, female desire we've discussed is, is a theme in the books, but there's also the men. And in uh, the country of others, uh, they, the men, they, always, they often seem uh, completely at a loss uh, when they're confronted with kind of a, uh, uh, an, uh, a female desire that they can't control. It's terrifying for them, really. Uh, there's uh, Amin who, who toils away uh, trying to uh, be successful making a farm near Meknes, and then he ends up losing it completely when he loses face because he sees a photograph of his sister, Selma, uh, in, the, in a window of, of a photographer in town. And then there's Omar, his brother, who is equally very um, domineering and wants to control all the women around him. And there are always these men, very, very taciturn, it seems, and very uh, quite unhappy. Um, what is this model of, of masculinity that you're trying to... It's develop? my family. Okay. <laughs> Uh, in my family, all men are very taciturn, very broken, very um, melancholic. 
um, they are all like that. And uh, now I'm writing the, 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 third, the third part. And uh, <coughs> I thought that I was uh, speaking with my mother and I thought that in my family, the men of my family were women. Mm. Uh, when you say, you know, he's the man of the family, the man of my family is my mother. The man of my family is my grandmother. My father was, was very melancholic, very sad, always seated at the same place, not talking. My grandfather, he ended up crazy, completely paranoid, and my grandmother was taking care of him. And she's the one who inherited the <coughs> sorry, the farm. So actually, yeah, in my family, uh, men were very fragile. And it's not, not only in my family. That's something that I experienced uh, many times uh, after a drama or a big accident in life. Uh, I thought or I experienced that women were stronger than men. Mm, that men, when they lose everything, especially socially, when they lose face, when they lose all their money, when they lose their power, it's like everything is finished. And women, no, they, they think that you have to continue and you have to take care of the children and you have, anyway, you have things to do. You need to wake up in the morning and go to the market and, and cook and take care of uh, the old people and the, and the children. And the men are completely frozen by humiliation, completely destroyed. And um, also uh, about the book for Amin or for Omar, it's also the fact that during those times of colonization, you have to imagine that those men who were young, who were strong, mm. who were former soldier, when they were out in the streets, they were very often humiliated mm. uh, because they were called Muhammad by the colonists. They were... Um, People would make fun of them and they have to say always, yes, sir, yes, sir. And I think that when they came back home, the only thing that they could control, the only thing that they could dominate, the only place where they were the boss mm. was towards women. Mm. So I, I think that they revenge, that there was a kind of revenge in the, the violence they, uh, they expressed towards women. Okay, I'm humiliated outside, but I'm going to humiliate you. Mm. That's also something that Fanon has described very well. Mm. The idea that someone who is humiliated is someone who is going to humiliate. Mm. And the question of shame. Uh, this, you, I think the Arab word is Hashuma. Probably not with that pronunciation. No, no, it's, it's like that. <laughs> um, and you, 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 you talk about it in also Sexy Mensonge. Um, the way you describe it, it's, it seems like it's, it's, it's a concept that's everywhere. In, and perhaps not only in your book, but also I was thinking, you know, French literature. You have some, Annie Arnaud has written very eloquently on the question of shame. Edouard Louis also from different positions, from the female position and from the homosexual position as well. And I was just wondering, what's the what, is the, what is the function of this? In Morocco, it's really the base of education. When you want to say that someone is well-educated, you say he's ashamed. Mm. 
Oh. It's something good, actually, the idea that you're someone who can feel shame. Someone who wouldn't feel shame is considered like a crazy person, like um, t would be totally marginalized. The idea is that if you live in a society, you should be ashamed, you should feel oh. shame. So for me, since I'm a child, I've always felt ashamed. I've always, have, I've always had somewhere... Um, a sense of, of shame. Um, always felt uncomfortable anywhere. Um, am I behaving in the good way? Uh, did I say something wrong? Uh, how people, ashamed of my body, ashamed of everything. So Is that a cultural shame? No, but it's not something, um, it's not like the culture of shame that uh, you define in the Western world. It's not like this. Uh, it's very different. It's the idea that uh, you, sh you should be a little bit um, discreet, uh, that you can't tell everything and express everything and show everything. This is more like a culture of secret. Mm -hmm. Um, it is not a. It is not a, what you mean in in the West by shame culture. It's not that. One of the scenes I really liked in the the, the latest book is uh, is when, for example, the Danish woman uh, Nilsa she she descends to Izuira and there's uh, these Westerners who before were the dominators and the the, the gouverneur and so on and, and suddenly uh, the Moroccans look at them and and suddenly the Western man is is ridiculous, everything is lost and they just dance and t do drugs somewhere and that must have been such a strange time to have this the same people, the meaning of them change. Yeah, and um, you know, that's always something that I ask myself because um, in Morocco, it's not like uh, in Algeria where it was, there was a war in Algeria, so there was this hatred and this violence between French and Moroccan. And even today, when you go to Algeria, the way they speak about French people is very often very violent. In Morocco, it's very different. When you speak about colonialism, you have the feeling that, oh, well, it was it was nice, it was okay. And at the end, we said to French people, okay, you said a little bit long, then could you go home? Okay, bye-bye. And they said bye-bye. So uh, when I, at the beginning, when I questioned people, I was like, but it's really weird what you're telling me because if I read history book, it's not like that. There was a lot of violence and a lot of, uh, yeah, of uh, attacks and things like that. And then, people, oh, yes, yes, now that you tell me that, I remember, yes, it was quite violent. But it's weird. It's like people completely forgot about that. Oh. And now in Morocco, you have a lot of French people living in Morocco. And I think that Moroccans are quite welcoming with them. So so there is no, they are not bitter about colonialism, and um, yeah, it's really weird. Like, um, like if there was a, like a sort of friendship now, and everyone acts as if we try to forget what happened before. Never, we never talk about this. That's like a taboo conversation that we don't have with one uh, with one another, and uh, everything seems cool. And I think it's yeah, quite a, quite strange. It's, so is that a, a success or a failure? I think it's a success. It's always a success when there is no violence. 
I think that we can be happy that there is no hatred and no violence, but in the same times, uh, I think also that there are probably a lot of taboos that we should speak uh, about. And um, I think that's maybe the role of my generation to try to have this conversation without any, any hatred. Mm. And um, you know, in Morocco, people would tell you that um, France brought also things to Morocco. It's something that is not politically correct to say, but Moroccan people would have no problem telling you that. Um, and for instance, you have in, in Rabat, in Casablanca, in many Moroccan countries, people are taking a very good care of the uh, uh, colonial architecture, and people are very proud now of uh, this architecture. So there is also this idea that you said about Kamel Daoud. They left things, and what is good, we take it and now it's ours and we don't have to be ashamed of that, of French language, of uh, mm. colonial architecture, now that it is ours. So it's, you think it's, it's possible to sort of decolonialize the imagination on yes, both sides of the Mediterranean? So. I think so. Yeah. Mm. So let's just turn uh, to, to, to current affairs because you, you worked as a journalist for many years and uh, uh, you came to France at a certain period of your life and uh, uh, these last couple of years in France have felt so tense in, in many ways. So, oh, really? Well, <laughs> Macron, he, 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 he was elected on a platform of trying to make society less tense in many ways. Uh, what a success. What a success. And now there's Eric Seymour, there's, uh, there's Le Pen, who uh, in, in many ways uh, maybe has a chance to be elected uh, as president. It seems very close if she's in uh, the second round. And many of these discussions that you find in French society about identity and heritage. Um, what is the meaning of the other? What do we have in common? And what is, so the question, what is universality? This is a key concept in, in French political discussion. And so on the one hand, you have people saying, uh, what you call the universal is just a word to make us forget the facts of discrimination on the ground. And then you have another position which is saying, hold on, if we lose the universal, we, use some, we lose something that's very precious. And I was wondering where you position yourself on that kind of spectrum. On the one hand, you have people saying there's uh, is, uh, left-wing Islamists in the universities, and on the other hand, you have radical decolonialists saying France is a, is a racist society, is a structural racist state. I think that I'm in the middle. Mm. Uh, I think that I, for a very long time, I was more the kind of people who would defend universality at all costs, saying that it's, and I still believe in that, that it's maybe the most important and the most beautiful also value that France can defend. The idea that at the end, you're not defined by the color of your skin, by your religion, by your gender, but that you are a human being. And as a human being, you can identify yourself to any other human being. And that there is this universality of 
our condition, but also universality of rights, and that we can all fight and claim for those, those rights, and I believe in that. The problem is that after 20 years living in France, I understood also that um, who, who defines universality, who defines what is universal? French people, European people, white people, and universality is always on one side. So when yourself you try to maybe explain to them that, yeah, this is one vision of universality. When, for instance, I give you um, an example. Um, when I was a child, I've always uh, heard that a European book or an American book is universal. That anyone can rely to this book, that anyone can identify to this book. And myself, I identified to John and Mary and Catherine and Jean-Paul and uh, uh, also to Russian novels and all this. But they tell you also that an African novel or a Moroccan novel, or an Asian novel, that's interesting, that's exotic. That's a good documentary, but it's not universal. No one will identify to Mohammed or to uh, Fanta or to Mamadou. There is this idea. So where is universality? There is this very famous quote of the Nobel Prize, Sal Bello, saying, who is the Tolstoy of the Zulu? Mm -hmm. And the problem is that the Tolstoy of the Zulu is Tolstoy. Mm. And so that's the question, who decides what is universal? Where is universality? So I think that universality is, of course, very important. And especially today, where I'm very afraid to see how much uh, in France and in other countries also, we live in little groups. We don't make society anymore. We are in our little tribes, little groups, and we want to live with people that are like us and think like us, and we don't want to mix with other people. And for me, that's the definition of democracy, being able to live with people that are not like you, that don't think like you, uh, to, and to disagree, but to live together peacefully. So, yeah, I think that we should fight for this universality, but people should also make an effort to try to have a real reflection on, on this universality. It should not hide the fact that, um, yes, people tell you, no, but you're French, don't tell me about your origin, don't tell me about the color of your skin, because at the end, the only thing that counts is that you're a French citizen. Yeah, but can you accept the fact that being black or having a frizzy hair or being from this neighborhood makes me more able to be discriminated? Can you accept that? You're not supposed to say that because you're a French citizen. But it's a, an utopia. It's a beautiful utopia. It's a beautiful ideal. But in real life, it doesn't work like that. Mm. But if you say that the idea of universality is created in the image of Europeans. Uh, what's a non-European universality then? No, I think that there is a non-European universality, but the problem is that we are rejected from it. Mm. Um, you know, it's all like this very interesting sentence that I love. Christophe Colomb discovered America. Mm. There is this idea that you become to exist when a European man looks at you and says, I discovered you. Thank you. But... 
America existed before Christophe Colomb. That's just this, that you become universal when you accept a certain time, a certain cause, certain values, and when you don't, you're a savage, you're nothing, you're not, you, you don't exist. That's the problem. I think that that's exactly what we were saying before about the veil. There is a lack of curiosity, an enormous lack of curiosity from the West towards the rest of the world and what other people, other culture can also bring to the definition of universality. Mm. So just l coming back, well, looking at France, what is this? So you said, well, tension, yes. And obviously, yes, there's been a lot of tension. Where does it, as you see it, where does it stem from? I don't really know. You know, it's very, very complex. Um, I think that in my experience, I would say that since 1915, since the attacks in Bataclan, for me, France has... Uh, is experiencing a sort of trauma. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know, PTSD, how do they call that? The, the trauma that people have when they come back from war. I, I think that the whole French society is experiencing that. Mm. Um, sort of fear of paranoia. Uh, and I can understand that. It was so violent. It was horrible. And then after that, there was the... Uh, the gilets jaunes, and then there was the, the strike against the, les retraites. People are exhausted. And there is this idea that, uh, you know, after the Bataclan, the, 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 the space, the streets were not safe anymore. Mm -hmm. There was this idea that someone could arrive and kill you on the mm -hmm. street, kill you in a terrace. And um, seeing after the, the, the you know, during the, the gilet, gilets jaunes, at one point when the black blocks arrived every Saturday and destroyed everything, there was this idea that violence was everywhere and uh, a terrible violence, a violence that de destroys like uh, big monuments, that destroys uh, houses, cars, uh, uh, boutique, uh, everything. So I think yeah, that people are completely exhausted now. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Leila. Thank you so much for coming here tonight. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Du har lyttet til en podcast fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast app. Hvis du kunne lide hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find den sorte diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jakobsen.